0: here we're going to talk about the Gulf Cooperation Council in regional dynamics. And I think it's important because the Gulf Cooperation Council was not widely understood until relatively recent times. Indeed, when George H.W. Bush was debating then-governor of Massachusetts Michael Dukakis and he talked about America's cooperation with the Gulf Cooperation Council, many newspapers thought he was talking about the Gulf of Mexico, so, so we're some, some ways down the road from that. But here we have an organization that's been uh, f- uh, faulted for its flaws, its limitations, its shortcomings, its non-achievements, its non-accomplishments more than for what it has done. And in this regard, I think uh, it might be useful for you to have the following context. Because the GCC, and some of the speakers may correct me if they see it differently, was hoping to become something in the region like the European Union uh, became and is, and was, and is aspiring yet to become. And yet, the GCC came into existence in ways that the European Union did not. For example, one, the European Union had the United States at its back and a treaty relationship through the North. Atlantic Treaty Organization. The GCC countries were on death's doorstep in terms of the Iran-Iraq war waging across the waters right next to them. They had no such formal guarantee by the United States uh, government. Secondly, the European Union uh, countries were founded by those who were ravaged uh, and uh, destroyed in World War II emotionally, psychologically, infrastructurally, economically and governmentally. Uh, and this provided an emotional, psychological stimulus and glue and and lubricant and adhesive that brought them together. You didn't have anything remotely comparable to the GCC countries. They were not war-torn. They were not the uh, the victims of the ravages of of, uh, world wars. Thirdly, the European Union had a pre-existing institution called the European Coal and Steel Community which had already begun an us between and amongst the signatory powers. There was no such uh, comparable economic institution between and amongst the uh, GCC uh, countries. Uh, these things were all absence and yet they, they formed themselves in spite of that. A model uh, for sure was the United Arab Emirates in terms of how uh, fast and how far they could go with regard to the. Politics of compromise and consultation and consent in keeping with their beliefs, their values, their traditions, their institutions. And here we are uh, uh, heading towards the fourth decade of this sub regional organization, which is supported by the UN Charter, which encourages sub regional and regional organizations uh, as further building blocks. Uh, towards regional security, stability, defense, and the prospects for peace and prosperity. We have uh, four distinguished uh, speakers who will come at this in different uh, directions. We have Dr. Abdulaziz Sagar, uh, who is in the middle of the table to my left, the one in the middle of the table who has a beard, not the other one there, who is the founding visionary of the Gulf Research uh, Center, that in less than a decade and a half has become the number one non-profit, non-governmental research think tank from Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad to Berber, Algiers to Aden, Aleppo and Alexandria uh, in between. Uh, there. And he and his colleague uh, Christian Koch are here. Uh, if you've not gone to one of the Gulf research meetings, you're missing something. Uh, after uh, uh, Dr. Saka we have Ambassador Steve Sesh, who uh, was America's ambassador to Yemen as during uh, the uh, run up to some of the even more turbulent times on his doorstep in Sana'a, in uh, uh, com- comparison and contrast to the ones uh, today. And then after uh, uh, Ambassador Sech, we have uh, Dr. Abdullah Shaigi from uh, the University of Kuwait. He used to head the information uh, office uh, outside of, of Kuwait. He's been an indefatigable uh, writer and speaker on issues pertaining to Arab-U.S. relations. And Abdul Khalik Abdullah, uh, to my far right, Who's a professor from the United Arab Emirates, retained his PhD from Georgetown University, and he's equally pro- uh, prolific in his writings, briefings, and analyses and public lectures. Dr. Saka, please. Thank you, sir. I will. I will. To, to my right is the ambassador of the Gulf Cooperation Council to the United Nations. Abdulaziz Alamar. We're pleased to have him.
1: I think somebody forget his watch here, so is it yours? I do want to look at times. Um, Excellency, ladies and gentlemen, what a great pleasure to be again in Washington, D.C., a town that I love, and I know it's the capital of the world, so many decisions are made in the Pennsylvania Avenue, so it reflects and it affects the whole world. I think I'll be commenting on a few issues that related to the region, primarily some of the uh, 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 key issues that we think affect the uh, Gulf and America relation. Uh, You know, this relation is old enough between both sides, between the United States of America and all the GCC countries. But at the same time, lately, and after the Arab Spring from, let's say, January 2011 until today, we have many open issues that unresolved and those issues I'll start just by telegraphic style and focusing on some of those point points and then go through them very quickly with you perhaps we can I can focus on the main concern in the region and how do we see it from our point of view if I start with our big neighbor Iran Prince Turkey have mentioned a lot of issues and I will just maybe emphasize some of those but definitely he mentioned Iran is very important for us because Ferris is a Muslim country, majority of course is the population. And second, geographically it is very important. We have no problem with the people, we like them, we live with them, we have a lot in common with them. But at the same time we suffer from the policy that Iran have adopted in the region. And I will start with the key issue there, using sectarianism as a means of intervention in the Arabs affairs issues. Now this interventionist policy has worked very well for Iran, but definitely not for us, because we feel it's an Arab region. It should be left to us to decide what we want and how we would like to do it and how to handle it. However, Iran claims that they suffered, of course, and I agree with them from the Iraq Iran war, but who you know whom to blame? We have to keep this away now. But after eight years I think both sides have realised there's no winner, so it's time to stop it. But after that the Iran Revolution Regime have adopted this sort of policy and what a big gift the U.S. gave them, you know, destroy uh, um, Iraq, have an open uh, gates for them. Uh, as Prince Saud al said in his speech uh, many years ago at the Council of Foreign Relations, Iran uh, delivered or received Iraq uh, in a golden plate, and what a beautiful gift. As a result of that, the U.S. invaded uh, Iraq for us. We were hoping at that time the U.S. will not invade. We say there are many ways of getting rid of Saddam without going through a war was based in a big lie, a chemical biological that nobody find anything there. However, the war was there. We hope that the U.S. should have finished the job and did it right. Unfortunately, the U.S. policy decided. No, let's walk away out. Let's hope it's all done. Let's leave nothing there. That even when they wanted to fight ISIS, there is no brigade fully in Iraq that can fight and stand there. So we have to come back again to redo it. Now, with that situation, of course, uh, Iraq was a big, a big issue for us because Iraq was a neighbouring country. You know, they have the mosaic of the uh, Muslim Sunni and the Muslim Shia and the Kurd live together. And at the same time, it was part of the equation of the Gulf security. With the new situation, Iraq are out of the equation of the the regional security. They cannot defend, they cannot support, they cannot be part of that one. So what do we have today? A huge security vacuum in Iraq, a divided Iraq, almost Uh, 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 a situation that it was a, a platform for the creation of what Prince Turkey called it Fahish. Uh, And I agree with him on that, Uh, you know, we call it, uh, people used to call it Daesh, but he said it's So, And then we moved from Iraq. So Iraq interventionist policy of Iran using the sectarian dimension did work fine for Iran, but again it put a huge burden on the Iranian policy, of course, to deal with that. Then Syria. Syria today is very important for us. Uh, we were hoping, I mean, Saudi Arabia position, the king that the letter have brought to the Syrian people, only came out after the expansion of the uh, user, massive use of force and the expansion of the tension within Syria. We waited until August, I believe, 2012, before even there was a letter. We were hoping that al-Assad will listen and try to resolve it amicably, politically, domestically, without going to go, without having to go through a massive... Things. But today, what do we have? We have 300,000 people have been killed, many million Syrian outside Syria, and uh, a destroyed country that will take many years to rebuild and uh, billions of dollars to do it. And today, Bashar still is there. Daesh and Nusra are there. Extremism are there, and Bashar is still there. So, what is going to happen? We've heard somebody from the region, from the non-Arab country, says that he expects to see an Alawi state, many Sunni, and a Kurdish state in in Syria. I'm not so sure the U.S. policymaker really, you know, uh, go through a detailed analysis and think about divisioning and separation in the region will work fine for the U.S. interests in the region. This is something they need to examine quite well. But why is that situation today? Because there have been a lot of veto from the U.S. I am not blaming the U.S. policy. I'm just mentioning some of the issues, by the way. So... What is happening there is we have the US veto, and number one, trying to f- identify who are the right people, who are the reasonable opposition in Syria, how can we support them, what do we need to do? There was never a Syrian opposition organized organization. It was a creation after the, the, what happened in Syria. So, but as a result of that, there is the moderate Syrian opposition, where Saudi Arabia and other countries have decided to help them, to support them, to get rid of Bashar al-Assad. We always had the veto from the U.S. either in equipping them or giving them the right uh, military adequate equipment that they required like anti-aircraft and anti-tanks because we were all afraid it goes in the wrong hand. Now, look at the wrong hand already today. They are there. They're operating. They're using all means and ways of of achieving what they would like uh, to achieve as a goal of that one. Yet, Iran and Russia stood very strongly there saying we are going to support our allies, Al-Assad, against the U.S. interests, against the, uh, the Arab friends of the United States of America in the region. So Syria remains there, Bashar al-Assad is there, 300,000 people have been killed, many millions outside, country are destroyed, and we are still revisiting the issue. We are still thinking to train some of the Syrian opposition. Hopefully the program will start in February. Hopefully they will be equipped not to change al-Assad, but to send a message to al-Assad that there are some people. So all these issues, I'm not so sure really, it's in the best interest of everybody in our part of the, of the, of the world. Now, Again, the issue of the nuclear program has been mentioned, and as, as Prince Turkey said, if the, G5, if, the, if the B5 plus 1 agree with Iran, we will be more than happy. I don't think we're going to have a final agreement in November. I think it will be extended. We're going to have another extension of, of, of negotiation there. But finally, due to the economic embargo in Iran, maybe we will see some sort of result, some sort of solution that will take place there. So if I look at all of these issues and then I move to Yemen. Yemen issues are very important. There was always a denial, state of denial from the Iranian that they have never been involved in the issue of, of Yemen. But reality says that as soon as the Houthis arrived to Sana'a, the first two people they released from jail was a Lebanese Hezbollah trained by the Iranian Revolution Guard and they delivered them to Iran, not to Lebanon, although they are Lebanese. So that shows the sort of flink is there there was two vessels with armament has been supplied through babilmandab through the yemeni which has been confiscated by the uh, uh, yemeni government we all agree we have a weak government we have never really supported we have done saudi arabia by the way to my best knowledge from march uh, 2011 until today have paid to yemen close to 9 billion dollars that's the money that we pay to yemen try to keep it pay the salary the wages support the government pay for the deficit that the Yemeni government has, but still, it's a weak state. It's uh, 25 million people there. Today, what we have there, we have a huge conflict internally. We have the Al Qaeda, which is a big threat. Saudi have supported the US by giving them the right base to use the drone to operate and to deliver their operation to the right uh, target they need to achieve in in in, in Yemen. But did that kill Al Qaeda? Did that finish Al Qaeda? Not yet. We still have plenty of Al Qaeda members there. So my fears today, today, although we have a non-state actor took over the situation, a run in a country like Yemen, uh, and try to control. They use the same methodology of Hezbollah. They do not want to rule. They just control the 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 key position and the key issues there in the country, and then negotiate everything negotiate the appointment of the prime ministers negotiate the number of seats they would like to have from four they went to six to ten now they don't agree to the prime minister they will and then later on they will negotiate all the constitutional issues there and make sure that to have although they only represent two percent as a zaidi in yemen and the rest of course 70 more than 75 percent are Shafi'i sunni in yemen however situation in yemen today is deteriorating there's a killing every day There's a conflict between Al-Qaeda and Al-Houthi. The Yemen, the South Yemen, what we used to call South Yemen, are fighting for their own independence. They want to be an independent. They say, we will go back to 1990 border. This is when it was a two separate country. At that time, the collapse of the Soviet Union, we find nobody to support us. So it was natural to look for a North Yemen and merge with them. We were never one country before the war of Yemen came in 1913 at the state of Yemeni. At that time, but it was never really one country. It was always separate. And now they are demanding for that. Yesterday, we heard the news. There was a big meeting in, in the south part of Yemen, on the Aden side, for their own parliament and constitution. They tried to call the people from the uh, defense and security to be back to south, and say, you belong to the south. You should be there to fight and to help for your own independent state there. Now, this is a creation of a new state. And then it may receive a big support from the Gulf countries, because let's save what we can save. South is 70% of the land, 70% of the resources, oil and gas, fishery and harbour are still in the South. At the same time, they share with Saudi Arabia almost close to 1,200-kilometer uh, border. So that makes it extremely important, vulnerable for Saudi Arabia not to let it collapse and not to let Al-Qaeda take over the South and announce a new state like what happened on the, on, on the North side. So that's, again, it's a, it's a situation where uh, we have there. So. It's unfortunately, although we love our Iranian friend, we don't blame them for everything. We love our American friend, but we don't blame them for everything. I think we need to blame ourselves in the region. Maybe taking it easy and for granted, making uh, ourselves believe that our friends will fight and we are willing to pay for that cost. You know, made us a bit lazy and not active enough as we should be in really dealing with matters and issues related to us in the region. So we should not blame the other. First, we should blame ourselves and try to deal with those issues. However, I think uh, from time to time, when there is a good coordination meeting, council between both sides, many of those issues are being discussed. Sometimes it takes a process, there's a huge bureaucracy between both sides, but at the same time, we can see. Uh, a better understanding happening uh, from both sides. I think this is the key issue I wanted to mention, and since I said I have two minutes, the two minutes I will use them to tell you that the GCC have survived more than 33 years, and the GCC is going to continue and survive. There's no question about the continuation of the GCC, even if there is a dispute. King Abdullah in December 19, uh, 2011, have called to move from cooperation to union, and we can see the union happening. These three countries are in agreement, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Qatar. Kuwait did not uh the, you know did not say no, but at the same time they are still discussing. UAE have come forward now with some of the issues. I think it's a process, it will take time. We can't see the union happening all of a sudden tomorrow. It's not just a political will, it's a process they need to go through it. But again we believe in the region, as people from the region, that if the Cooperation Council was created due to a political and security reason in 1981, the continuation of that one is the right of its people. So the people have the right to tie up to it, to keep it, and to move it forward to union, because we have a lot to gain. In that issue, I must say, for the United States of America, what's in it for them? There's a lot. And a lot it means what? Dealing with their unified body. On the, from the GCC, which is, cannot be identified as an enemy. It's a friend of the region and, and it's a friend of the United States. We have, uh, 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 you know, for us there, United States, it's irreplaceable. So the word irreplaceable is there. We cannot replace United States by India, China or other countries. No, we have that sort of a strong relation, a strong tie. So it's going to work better for United States to have a strong body. And luckily, and I'm sure the ambassador can correct in that issue. Uh, the last couple of years the coordination meeting between foreign minister, United State, uh, State Department meeting in New York takes place and many issues being discussed and there is a strategic sort of a dialogue and cooperation in that one. I hope the union takes place and it move forward for the best of the people there and for the best of the rest of the world and also with a strong alliance like the United States of America to see that cooperation brings a lot. We're still committed to sell our commodity in US dollar and we're still committed to deposit it in the uh, Federal Reserve, we're still committed to buy our military equipment, majority comes from the United States of America, so that commitment remains and we have our sons studying in your country. Saudi Arabia alone, we have more than 120,000 people, you know, students studying in this country. I was so happy to see only on the medicine side, there's more than 2,000 students you know, studying here, doing their uh, you know, advanced program and that one. So this makes it extremely important for us, so don't underestimate the relation between both sides. We have differences, but we should discuss them and hopefully we reach some sort of decision. Uh, the boss is pushing me to stop it. I'd like to thank him a lot. I'd like to thank the council for inviting me to be here in Washington and talk to you. I'll be glad to take some questions if there's time left. Thank you very much.
0: That was a great beginning.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, John, for letting me join you all this afternoon. Uh, As I begin, let me just note that I would normally never argue with anything that Dr. Ken Katzman uh, says, because he's a great scholar and I admire his work, but I will take small exception to his assertion today that the GCC is a center of gravity uh, in the Middle East. Frankly, my position would be that the GCC is punching well below its weight as an organization. Uh, put another way, I think it's something less at the moment than the sum of its parts. I don't think this is necessarily a permanent state of affairs. and. In fact, I do think it probably will change over time, but I do not believe that the intrinsic obstacles to that kind of integration or coordination that we all would like to see the GCC attain uh, will be uh, overcome uh, in the short term. I think there are three principal reasons uh, why this is the case. The first, I think, is a lack of internal cohesion among the GCC states on major foreign policy issues. We're all familiar with this phenomenon from Libya uh, to Egypt, to Syria to the Muslim Brotherhood, just about anywhere it shows up, uh, there is a dispute about how to approach the issue, how to resolve it, how to accommodate it, how to make the best progress on that issue. I might even suggest that on the most neuralgic issue uh, facing the Gulf, that is Iran and its resurgent role in the region, there is something less than complete agreement within the GCC. Certainly Saudi Arabia is the most adamant when it comes to describing the threat to regional stability posed by Iran and in this regard Bahrain certainly hues most closely to Riyadh's position. I would submit however that the rest of the GCC states even while wary of Iran's intentions are far more prepared to come to some accommodation with Tehran particularly if it avoids an armed conflict and allows existing commercial and economic relations uh, to persist. The UAE, for example, despite its continued dispute over three islands in the Persian Gulf with Iran, has historically close commercial relations, uh, mainly and particularly uh, via Dubai. Qatar shares enormous gas fields in the Persian Gulf. Kuwait maintains generally good working relations and Oman, of course, has carved out a particular niche for itself as Tehran's Tehran's preferred back-channel to quiet diplomacy with the West. The second impediment to a more cohesive GCC is a reluctance on the part of member states to relinquish the national sovereignty in pursuit of greater integration. Even on issues of economic integration, far less neuralgic than the political ones we see around us today, progress has been slow, at least partly because this is no easy task for highly autonomous governments, led by royal family members, to give up control over their nation's institutions and policies. There is yet another aspect of this sovereignty issue that we see arise as discussion turns to concepts such as a political union, and that is lingering concern on the part of the GCC's smaller member states regarding Saudi domination. This anxiety reveals itself from time to time in very public ways, as was the case last December, when Oman stated its strong opposition to efforts to form a political union. And as Dr. Sagar noted, Kuwait is still working on this, as is the UAE. Other Gulf states also are likely to be wary of the degree of an integration needed to forge an effective regional security organization, given Saudi Arabia's military capacity, which outstrips that of its neighbors. And the third and final element here at play is diminished confidence that the U.S. will continue to be the guarantor of Gulf security. Going forward, the GCC is going to be reluctant to take the hard decisions needed to form a successful regional security organization absent a significant commitment from its traditional Western backer. But conditions at home and political realities in the region may make it difficult for the U.S. to invest in new alliance structures. So how does the GCC form a more perfect union? To begin with, it may want to return to some of its founding fundamental principles. After all, as Dr. Sagar noted, the organization was founded in 1981, largely to further political and economic interests. Yet a customs union agreed to a decade ago has yet to take effect. And trade among GCC member states is extremely low, In 2011, it only represented about 6% of member states' total trade with the rest of the world. In comparison, intra-EU trade amounts to 10 times that total, or 60% of the EU trade. (coughs) Refocusing attention on adopting common customs procedures, domestic investment rules and regulations, and ensuring sufficient job creation for their citizens will help attract (coughs) the foreign investment needed as the Gulf states try to diversify their economic models and retool for success in the 21st century. And it may create a more propitious climate for consensus in other key areas of engagement. And friends can help. The US has tried to develop a greater sense of cohesion in the form of the Strategic Cooperation Forum, which it initiated in January 2012. Last December, President Obama authorized the sale of weapons to the GCC itself, which we all agree is a far more aspirational than practical matter since there is no procurement arm uh, in the GCC as of this moment. Nevertheless, it does speak to a U.S. interest in promoting a genuine region-wide approach to defense. However, in the meantime, what we're likely to see is a continuation of individual states stepping out to protect their national interests as they define them with or without the imprimatur of the GCC. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad to be here again. Uh, I thank uh, John Duke, Anthony, the Council, National Council on U.S. Arab Relations for allowing me the opportunity to be among distinguished uh, colleagues here on this panel and distinguished uh, guests in this hall. Uh, The topic I want to talk about, uh, how to strengthen the uh, GCC uh, United States uh, strategic relationship uh, in a time of crisis in our region. I just published a paper. I'd like to thank uh, the Middle East Policy Tom Mater here. I will recognize him for helping publishing my paper. Just came out the GCC-US relationship: a GCC perspective in the current issue of Middle East Policy, uh, Fall 2014. Uh, the issue at uh, hand here is why is there a rift? between two supposedly strong and strategic partners. The GCC has proven time and again their reliability and their steadfastness in being a moderate voice in a sane region that has been completely immersed in chaos and instability. Uh, Today there are a lot of phenomena. The dynamics in the region are really now Uh, clearly have shifted uh, from the traditional uh, powerhouses in the Arab Mashrib that uh, used to be uh, the powerful uh, role of Egypt, uh, Iraq, Syria. Today, GCC is the de facto leader uh, of the Arab world in terms of uh, GDP, in terms of initiatives, in terms of leadership. And we have seen uh, that over the last uh, few, uh, few years. But also, other phenomena is that we are also faced with failed states. We are faced with the weakened Arab political system. We today are faced with non-state actors dominating the scene. Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon before ISIS or Daesh or uh, uh, Fahish uh used to be uh, and still is the main player in Lebanon for instance uh daesh is the major now a uh, player in the region abu bakr al baghdadi is the most powerful uh, leader in that world and this is unacceptable uh, the third phenomena is that the blunders and mistakes by the united states have come home to roost now we are paying the price of these blunders uh the radicalization of, of, of even moderate Muslims is because a lot of people in the Arab world would argue, uh, uh, and as an analysis, is that by toppling Saddam Hussein with, with all his uh, uh, thuggishness, with all his dictatorship, caused the genie to get out of the, of the bottle and created this uh, uh, lack of uh, balance of power in the region allowed Iran to be a resurgent and powerful hegemonic player to meddle in the affairs of its neighbors and to be the ones who is calling the shots in many parts of the uh, in, Arab, uh, in four Arab countries at least as one uh, or many uh, Iranian officials have stated this also has come at a, at a time that there has been drift and incoherence uh, of U.S. foreign policy under the Obama administration. Regarding many issues that uh, the, this morning uh, Chess Freeman uh, talked about, I was struck by the uh, many speakers who spoke about the failed U.S. policy in the Middle East. I'm surprised. Yesterday we were at the Wilson Center and there was discussion. We have so many brilliant minds in this uh, belt uh, way here in Washington in various aspects, in politics, economics, strategic, you have think tanks, and it really bedeviled me why the policy of the United States is not as successful as it should be, why your allies are always now questioning the reliability of the United States when push comes to shove, will the United States be there? As Prince uh, uh, Turkey uh, Al Faisal stated, we told you so. If the United States listened to its GCC partners by not invading and toppling Saddam Hussein, Iran wouldn't be that menacing threat that it is today. And I'm speaking as a Kuwaiti now. Saddam Hussein invaded, occupied my country for seven months. We know the hellish seven months. But still, Saddam Hussein, with all his, his brutality, was the only guy who kept a balance of terror with Iran by toppling Saddam Hussein. You screwed up and you ruined the fragile political uh, or, or balance of, of terror between Iraq and between Iran. If the United States listened to the Saudis and to the GCC countries to bomb Bashar al-Assad when he crossed President Obama's line, red line, back in August 2013, when he gassed his own people. We wouldn't have been now forming a 50-country coalition of the willing and bombing Daesh. This is for the first time in history as as an international relations professor. I see 50 countries piling up, ganging up against an unstate actor with pickup trucks who do not even manufacture a bullet. This is insane. If this administration, our future administration, will not listen, will not uh, uh, be uh, transparent and will not treat their uh, reliable partners on equal par, and listen to their grievances and uh, and allay their fears, then I don't think this relationship could be really uh, uh, prosper to the maximum limit that it should be. So... I don't know how much time I have left, but I, I just would like uh, to, uh, to go to the conclusion uh, remarks, if I will, uh, leaving to maybe Q&A uh, time for, for questioning. Uh, today there is a fear in the GCC of abandonment. There is a fear between entrapment and abandonment. This is a, a typical uh, international relations security dilemma scenario. Uh, Abandonment in the terms of the uh, shale oil and gas uh, less dependent on 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 on, on g c c oil pivoting towards asia completely completely submerged with the, uh, with the inward looking and local issues now mid-term elections, ob- uh, Ebola, and pivot towards Asia. All these is- uh, issues are now playing panic fear at, uh, when, when they were announced, uh, especially pivoting towards Asia a couple of years ago. Now we don't see it as somebody uh, in the previous panel said, it was a pivot uh, from Europe, not from, from the region. Uh, the US uh, GCC Strategic Cooperation Forum was a move in the right direction, in my opinion, when it was established back in March 2013. Uh, when uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton met with it, her counterpart in the Riyadh, in the GCC General S- Secretariat uh, in March 2013. And we were glad to see in the fall of 2013, Secretary of State also, John Kerry, Uh, Hosted uh, the 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 meeting for the his his counterparts and also in Manama the Dialogue 2013 uh, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel asked for the expansion of the forum to include for for the first time also the ministers of defense from the GCC states. In my opinion, these high-level meetings and gatherings are important for us to be reassuring each other. Of the commitment and of the reliability of this, in my opinion, important strategic partnership and not relationship, the GCC countries are the only ones who are now participating actively in bombing Daesh in Syria in the forefront. Uh, for a strategy, I think that really needs to be more more coherent and more transparent. But nevertheless, we are active participants and that shows the liability of the GCC states as forces of moderation and of reasoning without costing United States a penny today I read the Pentagon has announced that uh, since August 8 the 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 bill of bombing Daesh 580 million dollars and counting I, I end by saying the GCC states themselves also we need to get our house in order, there is a rift within the GCC states, and uh, hopefully that this rift will be over, will be will be overcome. Uh, things seem to be heading, in my opinion, towards some kind of reconciliation. Uh, the strategic partnership between the GCC states and the United States is embedded in shared enduring interest, and the U.S. commitment to come to the defence of its GCC partners. Uh, we hope this will be. The hallmark of future administration also, regardless if a Republican or a Democrat will come to the White House. This strategic partnership also needs to be appreciated and understood by both sides. There is more room, in my opinion, for convergence rather than divergence over the strategic issues that could undermine the national interest of the GCC states. Especially dealing with Iran, for instance, and not including Iran meddling in the affairs of the GCC countries and other Arab countries to undermine the stability and security of that region and the United States' interests. Finally, the United States and the GCC states have invested for a long time a very, uh, in this strategic partnership in order to have stable and prosperous Arabian Gulf region. Both sides have more to lose than to gain if their shared interests are not harnessed into a shared agenda to reset and reinvigorate this strategic partnership in the long term. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Me. Yep. After Abdul Khalek Abdullah speaks. We have Abdulla, Dr. Abdullah Kawais to his immediate left, a former, long-time associate secretary general for economic affairs of the GCC, who drafted uh, virtually all of its uh, first uh, 14 years economic uh, resolutions. Uh, formerly president of the Arab Monetary Fund. The uh, other organization's uh, leadership roles with the International Development Islamic uh, Development Bank Ambassador to Bahrain. We're lucky to have him here. I'm not. That <laughs> was you.
4: Abdullah Guez. Uh, that was not me there.
0: No, that was not you. That was Abdullah. Uh, that was Abdullah. Yeah, Grace. that's right. Okay. <laughs> you uh, want, want him to go first? <laughs> first? No, I want he me. had him to go last. Okay. After, after you. It's after after you. Well,
4: if, if you haven't noticed yet, uh, this panel's packed with Abdul Aziz and Abdul Khalim and Abdullah and Abdullah. There's five of Abds here. So it's a bit confusing, maybe. They are all slaves of God. So don't get intimidated in here, please. Okay? <laughs> Uh, This is my third uh, participation in this annual conference, uh, and I'd like to just uh, thank John, and I hope to make it to the fourth year so it becomes officially graduation day for me uh, (laughs) next year. Uh, Let me just, uh, you know, uh, highlight uh, a few things uh, in addition to what you just heard from regional experts, maybe three, limit myself to three comments. One has to do with the current state of U.S. Uh, GCC relationship. That was, that's going to be my first comment. The second comment I will try to uh, talk about why the six GCC countries, why the GCC countries have decided to be on the right fight against ISIS, uh, Daesh. And my third comment uh, briefly is going to highlight the new challenges and the new dynamics in Gulf politics. So very uh, three uh, points. Uh, I try to, you know, go over each of them very briefly in this uh, 15 or 10 minutes that I mm-hmm. have. Starting with the, uh, you know, the state, the current state of U.S.-GCC relationship, which is the topic, the annual topic of this uh, conference. And I think what I see here, I see a lot of evidence. There is a lot of evidence on the ground that the once unbreakable bond between GCC and the United States is weakening by the day. Plenty of evidence that the bond is weakening, it's not strengthening. And let me be the brave soul to announce what I call if there ever was a golden era in US-GCC relationship, let me announce, announce it right here. And now there is an end to it these days. There is no more golden era in US-GC relationship, US-GCC relationship, certainly not the past six years of the Obama administration. So we have, you know, we have a, a, a relationship, a working relationship, but it is certainly not going through one of this best time. Maybe the best time was during the 1990s, 1991, etc. That's one example of the golden era of US-GCC relationship. Why is this happening fundamentally? If there is one good reason, one reason that I could bring to your attention is that the U.S. no longer commands the deep respect, the deep respect that the superpower should command. I don't think that is there anymore in the relationship. You don't see it in the public, you don't see it in the elite, you don't see it among government officials, the deep respect for America as an impressive super power is no longer there in the relationship and I think that without that deep respect You cannot command the attention uh, 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 Of the region and you cannot uh, see uh, the GCC as willing uh, Partner as they used to be probably And I think you know this is due to the bad performances that we have seen. The United States did poorly in Afghanistan, uh, disastrously in Iraq, inaction in Syria, and there is a a fourth test these days: fighting Daesh. And let's see that the US lives up to the expectation and restores that deep trust. But there is also the second reason, the second reason for. Uh, you know, that uh, the relationship is going through this uh, difficult time probably. Uh, And that has to do with the fact that, uh, you know, the six GCC states are growing by the day as as more confident, as more independent, and are for for the first time probably exhibiting and wanting to say no to America. A GCC that says no to America is a new GCC, by the way. A new Arab Gulf state is here, which is much more confident, and it is for the first time in the mood for the post-American Gulf. I think the thinking of a post-America Gulf is sinking in, and it's going to be a long process, not going to happen overnight, but the thinking is there, and the mood is there, a post America Gulf. And I think it's gonna be a long process, but the process has already started, at least in the thinking, at least in 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 uh, in, in, in the in the discourse and the conver- in the conversation. And as a result, what you have on our side, in the Gulf, is an attempt and a strategy to diversify our security portfolio away from the exclusive dependence on one superpower called the United States of America. It's not going to be achieved overnight. Maybe there is 10% deficit in that, uh, in, that, in that reliance, maybe even 20%, and the Gulf states are trying to make up for the 10, 20% deficit on that exclusive dependence on the United States as the ultimate protector of Gulf security, as the ultimate protector of the small states in that troubled region in the earth. That's comment number one. Let me move on quickly to to my second comment, which has to do with the question, why did the Arab Gulf state decide to be on the right side of the fight against this new beast, this new monster called Daesh, Fahish as Prince Turkey has called it this morning. Why did they join in? And I think you know, there are a couple of reasons for why they decided to join in so publicly as we heard it and so in such a powerful way. Not just publicly but they have sent some of their best men and some of their best women to fight and to fly uh, airplanes. Uh, Against Daesh, which is completely uncharacteristic of the usually quiet, conservative, traditionally cautious Saudi Arabia, UAE, etc., etc. So why they have done that uh, in such a public and big way? And I think the reason for this is two. One is that they are participating on their own terms. They come to Washington and they said, "Yes, we're going to come in here, but on our own terms." That's very important. And what happens is that Washington agreed, and now there is a test here. Hopefully, America will deliver, and hopefully, America will fight a better war this time to restore that deep respect which is no longer there in the relationship. And we just have to fight to, to fight it. And I think the Daesh is defeatable, but the United States have to put a better fight than it did in Iraq, than it did in Afghanistan, and the inaction in Syria is. Is there any guarantee that America is going to deliver? Is there any guarantee that America is going to fight a a, a good fight, a credible fight, a fight to the very end? There is absolutely no guarantee, but we are in this together, and let's find out by the end of the war if there is any end to this, a conclusive end to this. So that's why they have joined in. They have joined in specifically because they are in there on their own terms. The second reason to to, for for the Arab Gulf states to join in is that this is again a sign of confidence. We're no longer shy of flexing our muscles, the little ones that we have of course. We are not shy to to to, you know to to, uh, uh, exhibit our not just soft power but also our hard power and we have a few of them and go out publicly here and there and try to defend you know, uh, uh, our interest and advance our interest and uh, uh, in, 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 the, in a very difficult uh, region. So I think the second reason is a sign of confidence too. But the third good reason, a final one, a third good reason is that we are in this fight to put an end once and for all to put an end to all the nonsense accusation that Saudi Arabia that the Arab Gulf states are funding aiding extremism in the region here we are publicly fighting extremism forces of extremism has been unleashed in such a powerful way and we are at the forefront of it so these are the good reasons why we are in this and let's hope that you know uh, uh, this time around we defeat forces of darkness that has been unleashed throughout the region. third final comment has to do with the new challenges and the new dynamics in the Gulf, in Gulf politics and I think uh, 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 there are all challenges and the new challenges but what happened in the past four years since Arab Spring two forces has been unleashed in, much, in in the most powerful way you could imagine throughout the region two forces Force one is forces of change, which was unleashed in such a powerful way in in 2011, and it is associated with the Arab Spring. And the intention of the forces of change is to end six decades of political stagnation and change government. That was force one. And I think we saw now, four years later, that this force of change has been more or less contained, subside, and the Arab Gulf states have come more or less resilient and immune, more or less, uh, to forces of change. Now, in the past six months, we have seen a stronger, much powerful force that came about, which is forces of extremism, Islamic extremism, yes, forces of darkness, forces intent of bringing havoc. And the intention of this force is not to end government, topple government, overthrow government, but end state, nation-state as we know it, as it has developed over the past 150 years in this. These forces really want not to challenge government, but to challenge and get, uh, get, get done with nation-state as it has developed. They want to create the Ummah. They do not want to have borders any longer. So this is a much more dangerous, much more potent force that needs to be confronted. So the region is in turmoil because of these two, there's plenty of uncertainties because of these two forces and the Arab Gulf states are in there trying to confront all this. The good news for you and for us all, the Arab Gulf states have proven time and again that they can survive it all. And I may assure you that they are result- resilient and they're going to fight this fight and they're going to be also sur- to survive it. They have developed over the decades, over the years of being part of this very difficult region, they have developed their own recipe how to survive tough challenges. They have been through so many tough challenges, 60s, 70s, 80s, Iranian Revolution, Arab nationalism, Arab Spring, uh, Bin Laden, terrorism, and they have survived. So do not underestimate the power, the resilience of these countries. There is a new dynamic, despite the Gulf rift that uh, Ambassador has talked about and you all know, there is a new dynamic there in the region. And the new dynamic, let me just finally just conclude in here, is this. There is a heightened coordination and cooperation between Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. Keep watching. Keep your eye focused on this heightened coordination between Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. These two today are the new dynamics in the region. They call most of the shot. Of course, in coordination with everybody else, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and even uh, our Maverick Qatar uh, uh, friend there, but they call the shot. Okay they are the ones to watch. This is the new dynamic in the region. UAE, Saudi Arabia. If you're looking for the new dynamic in the region, this is the new dynamic. The politics, the 2014 Gulf politics is decided by these two countries, which are, you know, living uh, the best of their time in their relationship. If there is ever a honeymoon, this is a honeymoon, and let's hope that it lasts longer than one month. Maybe it will last, uh, hopefully, longer. Now, of the two and since I come from the UAE, I have to end up saying that it is the UAE, which is the bolder, which is the more assertive, which is doing most of the, most of the uh, uh, job there. And I think if you want to call a capital, call Abu Dhabi more than any other capital in the region today, and you will hear the response. They are the one. If you want to get uh, things done in the region, call the number in Abu Dhabi, and you could bet your money safely on that number, okay? so. Gold days of U.S. Gulf relationship is gone, maybe forever. Second, uh, I think uh, you have to get used to uh, Arab Gulf states that is assertive enough in general that can say no to Washington and prob- probably impose their own terms on whatever goes on. And thirdly, there are plenty of challenges, all and new, but there is also this new dynamic. Let me just bring the final message to your attention from the Gulf. We have... We just have to do our own fight from now on. And I think if we see a reluctant superpower, we just have to do it on our own, and that's the way it's going to be from now on. Thank you very much.
0: for extraordinary presentations. Now we have Dr. Abdullah (laughs) El-Kawais Good uh, good
5: afternoon, everybody. Uh, Don't feel bad, Mr. Chairman, that you forgot to introduce me uh, earlier. It's okay. Uh, I was in a conference uh, four months ago with the present uh, Prime Minister of uh, uh, Turkey and the Minister of Finance of Saudi Arabia, and they forgot to call me to the podium. So don't feel bad. It's okay. (laughs) I have have, uh, been used to that. Uh, uh, The first, uh, I I want to make uh, one point actually in the previous meeting regarding GCC. Especially when uh, Mr. Katzman made these categorization how to divide GCC uh, states and... uh, now, uh, Ambassador Satch gave me a better excuse to talk about it uh, now. Uh, the founding father, and by the way, uh, Abdul khalid uh, the GCC charter was signed in Abu Dhabi, so it's no surprise that we can call Abu Dhabi. Uh, the, uh, uh, the founding father of GCC uh, called it Gulf Cooperation Council. It is a cooperation among sovereign states. They didn't call it Gulf, uh, United uh, Gulf Council. They called it Gulf Cooperation uh, Council among sovereign states and they had in mind the sovereignty issue for a number of them that uh, came out of uh, colonization or uh, protectorism uh, uh, or civil war in case of oman so the uh, the sovereignty issue was very dear to them the challenge is not to not to uh, work as a uh, as a group but how, but how to bring uh, stability and security To their members. And as you heard from Abdul Aziz and from Abdul Abdul Khalib, since the creation of 1981, GCC has been stable in spite of all the uh, wars and revolutions around us. And this is the big challenge. Now yes, we haven't gotten a, a unified currency. Unfortunately, we tried like what we did before to uh, imitate the European unions and we started this uh, uh, currency issue. And uh, in the middle of the process, the Europeans discovered that they made a mistake and they are, we are taking a pause. And uh, thank God, we are taking uh, a pause. So the challenge is this security. We have been maintaining it. Now. A second issue that I want to touch upon is our relation with the United States, especially our economic relationship. Uh, during uh, George W. Bush, they came with a concept called creative chaos. Creative chaos. Creative chaos. And they tried to break up this economically and they pushed countries to sign free trade agreement with the United States. Uh, Bahrain was the first, uh, Oman was the second, United Arab Emirates, the negotiation didn't didn't go very, very far and the idea was to break up GCC. The agreements that were made gave better treatment to the United States more than the treatment that each and every member has given to the other member. So I wish uh, JW stayed in the Gulf of Mexico rather than than, uh, GCC when you said that uh, he was bringing up the name of GCC. So, and by the way, uh, Ambassador Sach, the uh, trade among uh, GCC members, if you take up the, the oil sector, it will be over 40%, which is not too far from where the intra-trade among the, the EU. Uh, so I don't know where you got your numbers. So, and I have a suggestion in this
1: sense.
5: And the suggestion, uh, United States successfully negotiated uh, North America free trade area. Now they are negotiating with, uh, with the EU free trade, uh, uh, free trade area and with the ASEAN free trade area. Now United States is our uh, major trading partner. Why in the name of God couldn't we sign a free trade area between the United States and GCC? Both markets are very lucrative. Locra- uh, We noticed in the 2007, 2008, 2009, the uh, business, American business people was just running away to airport. We used to have a joke in 1990 when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait that the fastest thing in the world was a Japanese going to the airport in GCC. (laughs) Now we saw the Americans are even faster. So (laughs) I think it is about time that we both Put our houses in order and see and sign a free trade area between GCC and uh, the United States as a matter of fact we are uh, we are uh, even suffering from your monetary policy. There was a, a, a study made just last week by by the uh, IMF here next door saying that seven hundred eighty billion dollars left the GCC because of the American uh, monetary policy. Now, it is about time that we sit down and negotiate our economic and monetary relations like what Abdelaziz emphasized regarding the bonds, regarding the American dollar and using it in our uh, trade transactions. And we agree as civilized people on how to go forward. Thank you
1: thank you
0: thank you Dr. Elkowitz we have um, quite a few uh, questions and um, I will stand and ask them and then maybe each individual who would like to respond can uh, give me the finger so to speak and I'll call on uh, them in the order that they do that Uh, How have the United States-led nuclear talks with Iran challenged U.S.-GCC relations? What difference have they made? We hear that um, there was angst because the U.S. did not try very hard to have a GCC representation in the talks, if only as auditors. Um, For example, if Russia or China were trying to have a strategic treaty with Canada and the um, United States were not allowed to be auditing the meetings, this would um, be seen as outrageous. So um, you you, you were shunned in this regard. Uh, We're told that the U.S. asked Iran and Iran said no, and so the U.S. said, okay, and left you out. Um, Anybody want to take on that question? Uh, Dr. Saga.
1: Well, I think the concern, of course, if negotiations take forever, we need an end for that negotiation and we need precise time and we need what are the deliverables. We are in agreement, as I said, with what the uh, uh, B5 plus 1 will come out as a result of that, but it cannot go forever because Iran started with the simple enrichment and then they went up to 20 percent enrichment, so they use time for negotiation to prolong and to get a major. What we are worried from, that when the Iran will come and say, look, it, we are advanced enough that we cannot stop it. We cannot, you know, we are there. So then everybody has to accept the consequences of that. All right. Uh,
0: yes, Abdullah, and then uh, Ambassador Sesh.
3: Yes, I mean, uh, even within the GCC states, there are two uh, divergent views regarding the participation of the GC uh, with the P5 plus one plus one because we were taken aback when we found out that the Americans our allies were negotiating uh, covertly with the Iranians since March 2013 and that was six months almost uh, before uh, President Rouhani the moderate took over uh, the Office of President of Iran and of all places it was in Oman in Muscat and in Geneva and we were the last to know about uh, these secret uh, negotiations behind our backs and as allies of United States we were supposed to be uh, briefed or, or aware of what's going on uh, this is number one. Number two, as I said in my, uh, in my uh, speech, uh, the issue of uh, treating the, the uh, being obsessed with the deal Obama administration obsessed with a deal, uh, with a nuclear deal with Iran, and not taking care or discarding or not listening to the GCC uh, 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 demands that also should be on the table part and parcel of the deal is also to, uh, to contain Iran, to stop Iran shenanigans and involvement and meddling in the affairs of its allies in the GCC countries. To the level that the Iranians are boasting now that they have domination over four Arab countries, two of them uh, bordering the GCC states, Iraq in the north and Yemen in the south. So these are the issues that really are concerning us regarding where this negotiation will lead, what kind of Iran are we talking about, and The nuclear deal with Iran would embolden Iran, not to come back as the Americans keep telling us. And later on, we will discuss the issues that are concerning the GCC. What guarantees are there? If Iran will get a deal with the Americans and with the P5 plus 1 over its nuclear file, then Iran will be the agent that plays the role of guarantor of security from its perspective, fighting terrorism, fighting Daesh. Ironically enough, Iran is on the list of United States countries sub- that supports terrorism. I mean, there, there, there is a lot of contradiction uh, in this regard. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Ambassador Sesh.
2: No, I'm, I'm good. I think Abella pretty much covered what I was going to say. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you.
0: Here about three that involve uh, Palestine or Israel. Um, How, if at all, has the U.S. strategic relationship with the GCC countries impacted its relationship with Israel? Uh, Given that uh, Israel lacks the geographic depth and diversity of um, the GCC countries, you don't have to fly over it, and run through it, jog through it, to get to any place of significance globally, and it has no strategic uh, minerals, oil or gas, Nor does it have uh, water, Um, how do you see this closening of the partnership and the relationship and the mutuality of the benefit and the reciprocity of reward that the two can have and are having, sovereign wealth funds, remaining wedded to the dollar, et cetera? Uh, Dr. Elkawish, you want to have first whack at that? because you mentioned about the free trade agreement. Um, How realistic is that? The European Union sought one, did it not, from the late 80s on and had annual meetings, but um, it came to naught. What lessons are there in this?
5: Well, I think, uh, first of all, our experience with the European Union was very long and very painful and came out uh, almost to nothing. It has started since uh, 1986, the negotiation. And uh, it stopped because the Europeans uh, wanted to put in a trade agreement some issues that are not related to trade at all, mainly uh, um, human rights and rights of women, which is, there are institutions, we don't mind talking uh, about them, but uh, uh, they are the place of. Uh, of uh, trade, the place of them is not a trade uh, agreement. Now, regarding the uh, relationship between the United States and uh, and the economic relationship uh, between the United States and uh, and, uh, uh, GCC, I think it it needs more formalization. There is a a strategic meeting every every year among ministers and uh, uh, emissaries come and go to all, all the capitals every month. But I think we have to put it on its uh, right keel uh, similar to the same approach that the, the United States is, is doing with other uh, groupings. We are not asking for, 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 uh, for the moon. We are asking to be equal with the Europeans, with the Far, far, Eastern, far Easterners, and we are a major trading partner of the, the United States. Uh, And there there is in it for everybody. There is the resources, there is the big market. We don't uh, want to see only the military industry in our countries. We want to see everybody. Everybody is welcome in our own countries to come and reap the benefit uh, with us. And also, we want to learn from them.
0: Okay, um, in the interest of time, I'm going to read about four or five questions and uh, listen carefully. If you want to answer one of them, just uh, give me the finger again and um, I'll, uh, I'll recognize you. Um, who would talk about the, uh, what's going to happen to the GCC with its railways? Saudi Arabia is booming with railways. Qatar is announcing doing railways. The Emirates are doing railways. We don't know exactly where it will end up in Oman, or maybe we do. What will this do um, to the economies, to the peoples, to the geostrategic, geoeconomic relationship and significance of the region? Uh, Dr. Saka, you want to go first? No, and I want, then, I and want to
5: talk. Uh, to right, Donald. Donald. I want to talk about the economic dimension yes. because it is. Uh, uh, I think uh, this is why it is built. Uh, and one one important economic dimension is the the volume we consume in energy in the transportation sector. Uh, for example, if you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, where 10% of our GDP is paid as subsidies for our consumption of uh, of energy. The railroads will save a lot of money because we have over 120,000 trucks just going back and forth inside each GCC countries and across the borders. Mm. I think this will be cut tremendously. It will contribute to the, uh, first of all, saving of energy. Second, more integration. Uh, uh, Third, it will facilitate, you know, from one of the issues we we now face, we could not solve, is the border crossing. I think having having a a railroad uh, that you will have to clear from where it starts. So I think this will integrate uh, people and trade more among GCC.
0: All right. Dr. Sagar, you want to add to that?
1: I think most of the quote has been mentioned.
0: All right. Um, Can I, uh, John? Yes, yes, Abdullah. Yeah, please.
4: Uh, I didn't raise my finger, but I (laughs) want attention. That's all right. (laughs) I'll make it. Okay. I think the railway is just one of uh, the uh, many aspects of integration that is not being paid enough attention to it's one of those pillars of gulf integration and it's going to create massive massive opportunities for further integration and i think uh, i'll take this opportunity to just e- elaborate that despite the gulf rift, despite the dispute despite all the confusion on the political aspects of gulf integration there is a whole lot of aspects of integration that is going on while we're having all these disputes and the, the railway is just one, one of them, which tells you and which should uh, you know, uh, say a lot that Gulf integration is well and alive and ticking and it's not dead just because we have some problem over there. Yes the political leg of the Gulf integration is, is having problem and 2014 has not been the best year for Gulf integration. but. If you go to Riyadh, if you go to the General uh, uh, the Secretariat, you would see that Gulf integration works through 46 different ministerial councils, some 370 different technical committees that work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 360 days a year, 700 different. Uh, uh, meetings every single year. 13,000 Gulf officials meet in Riyadh and other capitals to hammer out the different aspects of integration. So for uh, Ambassador Sec to come and say that, you know, Gulf integration is going nowhere, I think he needs to readdress some of the things he knows about the GCC.
0: Thank you, Abdullah. Um, No further comment from here. Uh, Back to Iran. What would be the likely strategic and military implications for the GCC region were Iran to acquire the means to produce and deliver a nuclear weapon? I've heard people say it would change the balance of power immediately overnight and irrevocably. Or if your neighbor with whom you had acrimonious relations got a shotgun and you didn't get a shotgun yourself, you'd be seen as a fool. So, Iran-related question, and what if the U.S. or the Israel were to strike Iran? Uh, So, these two aspects of the Iran question. I've heard you address this before, Dr. Sagar. Would you please? And and Abdullah.
1: Uh, Well, Iran for us is an intelligence power rather than being a military or strong military power. The reason they've used that intelligence mean to establish cells in the Gulf region. We had one in Kuwait, Iranian cells in Kuwait, Bahrain, and in Saudi Arabia. But when it comes to their conventional military, they stand not a bad chance. If they move to military, if they move to nuclear deterrent, it's easy to offset that by three different means. I remember Secretary Clinton when she was in a visit in Thailand, she said United States will be willing to provide a security, she did not say nuclear, she said security umbrella for the region. So you can go to some of your friends and ask for an umbrella to offset an Iranian deterrent and threat by the military, by the nuclear means, or you can acquire a sort of a uh, a special relation that you have to some of those countries—a joint use. America did that for Germany for many years. You see, after the Second War. So, uh, if Iran decide to be a nuclear deterrent, I find it much easier to deal with and to offset that one. If they want to enhance more their conventional military. Uh, which of course takes much more time, much more effort. They need to put up a lot, particularly in their air force. What do they have today is what we call fire and forget missiles. We don't know where they will end up. Yes, they come up with everyday technology, they announce many things, they publish it in the TV, but there is no independent uh, viewing of that capability, there is no independent sources that say this is accurate, this is correct, this is really something. It's all, it's their word against the rest of the world, word. so if you, if you believe them in what they say, that's fine. So I don't think from my point of view that we see Iran uh, uh, you know, if we reach to that point where Iran have a nuclear deterrent, I think the rest of the world have to worry and not us. This is why we are a bit relaxed when we see the B5 plus one taking the negotiation. The only concern we have is the prolongation and the taking time until they reach to the point that it's difficult to retreat. And, whether the American or the Israeli will, will do a strike in, in, in Iran officially or most of the GCC countries and I use the word officially, have said no. We will not provide land and sea or air as a support for any strike like this. But if somebody decides to fly over and we don't have our AWACS and our radar at that day in operation, what can we do?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Abdullah, and then Ambassador. Just,
3: uh, just briefly. Uh,
0: I mean... Abdullah, in your remarks, um, what people do not know about Kuwait and nuclear issues, um, and I didn't know this until Kuwaitis told me at the last summit, um, in 1986 when the Chernobyl uh, accident happened in the Soviet, then Soviet Union, uh, some 200,000 people had to be relocated and the U.N. Secretary General called for countries that would subsidize the, the cost, and Kuwait was one of them, as it often has been. And those countries elected Kuwait as the president or the chair of, of the uh, commission that was responsible for that. So Kuwait's been involved with nuclear issues, certainly nonstop since then. And there have been other Kuwaitis who have talked about uh, the reactor at Bushir. That yes. Iran, which has so many earthquakes in its history, were it to have one in that place or near it, how catastrophic or dangerous would the effects be?
3: Well, uh, we are living in the in the eye of the storm, uh, especially Kuwait. We are only like uh, from Bushir two hundred seventy kilometers. That's uh, I think one hundred fifty uh, miles away. Our fear is not Iran becoming nuclear. Iran's nuclear program or project is means, not an end, in my opinion. Iran wants to leverage its nuclear program in order to get you know, concessions from you guys and from the international community to admit that Iran is a major power to be reckoned with and to deal with Iran with respect. I mean Iran has been suffering from uh, Rodney Dangerfield, no respect in the region. It's not part of a security architecture. It's been ignored. It's not, it's, uh, for its size, its power, uh, and its uh, capabilities, it hasn't been given the right uh, approach. Our fear is that it's not a nuclear Iran. Our fear is more like a nuclear uh, meltdown fallout uh... and the or or an earthquake because the for instance is a the fault line and a lot of earthquakes keep hitting that region and that means that we are really in big trouble because we don't have rivers with fresh water we uh, we have the largest desalination plants all over uh, the gulf uh, from kuwait uh, to oman that's that's really our fear our fear is if Iran becomes nuclear, as you know, nuclear arsenal is not an offensive weapon. It's a deterrent weapon. It's a weapon that will get your respect, will put you on the map, and will make you uh, uh, powerful. The fear is that how Iran would use its leverage of nu- if, if, if and when Iran becomes nuclear to intimidate and to get concessions from GCC states that it wouldn't have gotten it, without its nuclear arsenal, and that could escalate into GCC countries. Saudi Arabia is on record, will become a nuclear power. If Iran becomes nuclear, we're going to become nuclear. I heard that from Prince Turkey himself in Saudi Arabia in a speech a couple of years ago. So this is the future. You're going to have nuclear escalation. You're going to have arms, uh, arms nuclear race in the region. We're not with obama administration you could really uh, don't count on a military strike by this president mm-hmm. who doesn't have the 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 the, uh, the guts to send troops on the grounds to fight daesh or to, to launch another war in his doctrine he doesn't believe in in, uh, in wars so we do not see a, a, a war at hands if uh, the nuclear t- negotiations now taking place in geneva within a month from now should reach some kind of a deal. Uh, Iranians are now hurting badly because of the economic uh, pinch that they are feeling. They need to sell it, their oil at $147 a barrel to break even. And that is the thing that brought them to the table. The Iranians would like us to believe that uh, the election of uh, Rouhani is what brought them to the negotiating table. We believe that it's not the case. The guy who calls the shot in Iran is al-Murshid Ali Khamenei and not Rouhani with all his nice smiles and moderate uh, uh, moderate stance. He's not the one who's calling the shot. So the issue of nuclear Iran is, is, is an international concern rather than a GCC or regional concern only.
0: Got it. I'll come to you, uh, as Ambassador Sesh, but I want to have... Um I uh, have uh, an opportunity here to do two things, one is what's driving the Abu Dhabi uh, dynamic dimension that you allude to, uh, joined with uh, Saudi Arabia as the drivers of uh, dynamism here of late, and if you care to comment, what's driving the animus between Abu Dhabi and Qatar? That's for you to ponder for a second. and and I'll just ask these others and see who wants to answer them. Uh, How might the um, expansion of the GCC's membership bring with it more negatives than positives? You have an allusion to Jordan, an allusion to Morocco, uh, and some others who are aware of how it was founded, Yemen and and, uh, Jordan and um, Iraq. Uh, so that's a question. And then ISIS, who funds ISIS? And wasn't there a recent uh, effort within the GCC to find out who does fund ISIS and to clamp down on it?
3: Ransom oil and and mm-hmm.
0: antiquities. Yes, but but before they sell
3: oil, they have ransoms, antiquities. They sell.
0: Uh... Okay. Plus um, uh, donations yeah, has <laughs> as the floor and then Ambassador. Sesh.
4: Yeah, I'd like to respond to both of these uh, issues, uh, John, And uh, very briefly, before I do that, let me just briefly go to the nuclear Iran and uh, say that Iran is uh, taking us in the Gulf into this very dangerous path, which is the nuclearization of the Gulf's security profile or portfolio the nuclearization of the gulf is irans responsibility it is the state that is taken us into that direction and it is going to be a qualitatively even if iran does not develop the weapon just the thinking of developing a, 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 a nuclear capability developing all these missiles capable of deliverable uh, missiles is just This nuclearization of Gulf security we have not seen in the past 40 years and Iran is entirely responsible for that and from everything that I know, the Gulf states intend to match Iran dollar by dollar, weapon by weapon, and it's going to be a very dangerous zone. It's already dangerous, but it's going to be 10 times, 100 times more dangerous if Iran really develops. It's nuclear capability. This nuclearization of of the Gulf is not our problem. It's the international community's problem, so they have to stop Iran from going into that road by any means possible, short of war, of course. Going back to your questions, Abu Dhabi, why is it so active uh, uh, in in this past uh, four or five whatever years? I think the fundamental reason for that is that Abu Dhabi wants to project itself as a force of moderation in the region. We have lost moderation. There's so much extremism uh, in in the region. The region is full of uh, forces of uh, of extremism, and I think the the UAE finds that probably it, The UAE and the Gulf have to project moderation, and they want to make sure that the Arab world is, is a moderate Arab world rather than an extreme Arab world, which is not going to be to anybody's benefit. If there is one capital, which is a capital of moderation today, Abu Dhabi is, and it is investing so much. Into uh, you know uh, into trying to preserve forces of moderation in the region, and I think the second reason for UAE is being so active and assertive and going around doing so many things is that it really values the stability more than anything else. This is a region that is full of in- uncertainties, full of instabilities, chaos. As I said, forces of changes and forces of extremism and radicalism is there, and somebody has to defend the stability in this region, and I think this is the fundamental mm-hmm. reason behind UAE coming as being assertive and bold and taking initiatives. The Qatar UAE uh, problem, it's a problem, okay? And there is some good, not good reason, but the reasons for that are the the following. It all boils down to views about the Muslim Brotherhood. I think that's fundamentally what is at stake. Qatar think Muslim Brotherhood as being moderate, as being uh, an asset in the region, whereas Abu Dhabi UAE think that Muslim Brotherhood are one of those forces that are not uh, status quo forces, that are uh, forces intend to change, uh, forces that are not moderate, as many of you here probably in, in, in Western capital think, and hence they are not an asset, they are a threat. And here we have a fundamental breakdown on the perception of a force that is on the rise, which is the Muslim Brotherhood. We think in the UAE that uh, they are a threat to the status quo, a threat to stability. Uh, you know, they are their intent in, in creating a world uh, government, et cetera. Whereas Abu, uh, Qatar think that they are an asset and they are a force of moderation. And I don't think we are seeing eye to eye on this issue. And this is where most of the problems come from, John.
0: Okay, thank you for that answer. Ambassador Sesh, and this uh, will be the, uh, Last one, unless someone wants to elaborate on the ISIS aspect. Um, I
5: want to elaborate it. on the expansion of GCC. Expansion of GCC. Yes,
0: yes. And uh, Dr. El-Kawais on the expansion of the GCC. But first just, ambassador just, just
2: for a second on the issue of, of how the Gulf states may or may not respond to a successful uh, P5 plus 1 outcome. And I think that it's been said already that either way, we're going to see the Gulf states develop um, and, and equity, and I think Prince Turkey said as much today. He said, we welcome a deal, whatever that deal is for the, Iran will be the same terms we expect to receive for our own industry. And that means in terms of both um, enrichment, whatever it happens to be in the sixth, or, or in terms of any kind of armament, and I suspect we would see uh, Saudi Arabia at least move towards acquisition uh, of, a, of a nuclear weapon if it was conceived that Iran was in that position. Now on, on the issue of what would happen if there were <coughs> an actual attack, on an Iranian facility by anyone, U.S., Israel, anyone, I firmly believe they would not see a formal response by Iran. We would see an asymmetrical response. We would see terrorist attacks in the region. We would see things that would be easily undetectable, or at least there would be some question as who is responsible and would not be a formal tit for tat in any respect.
0: Okay, thank you. Abdullah Al on the enlargement of the GCC. What yeah. benefits or deficits would it bring?
2: Well, uh, it
5: shows two things the call for enlargement it shows two things first of all the dynamics of the organization it's very lively and ticking second the inclusiveness of gcc that it is not a closed club yemen was was almost to become except for when they Uh, the security in the country collapsed. Uh, Everybody was ready to accept Yemen. Now, when we saw the Arab system uh, collapsing, the uh, leaders of GCC looked at who is the most stable in the Arab countries, Jordan and Morocco. And they called for Jordan and and Morocco to join, to share the wealth, to to share the prosperity that uh, GCC uh, has, and to also to contribute more to the stability of the uh, of the of the region. But uh, it shows that it is re- it is open to new ideas, uh, and it is vibrant. Thank you
1: plus Jordan in 1995, they applied to join the GCC, so in reality Jordan much earlier have applied and they wish to join. And instead of the expansion, I think then the GCC decision was let's support them economically, let's give Morocco, the, you know, the preferred country in terms of relation, more investment there but then also support each one with $5 billion to enhance their economic situation.
0: Mm would you would you not have to change the nomenclature though because George is not a Gulf country, Morocco's not a Gulf country, yeah, but Yemen's not a Gulf because
3: country because of that it didn't fly
0: that's right also in the charter of the GCC it talks about uh, countries yes. with a shared history, common culture and similarity in terms of forms of government <laughs> Iraq's I mean, uh, uh, government John, was uh, overthrew it, a monarchy it was a
3: trial balloon and didn't fly I mean, and
0: that's... Yemen's uh, government came to Pass overthrowing a monarchy, so that that would have ruled them out on those grounds alone. Please join me in thanking these fantastic uh, speakers. (laughs)